0: For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the deaths of kings, how some have been deposed, some slain in war. Ay me, I see the ruin of my house. The tiger now hath seized the gentle hind. Insulting tyranny begins to jut upon the innocent and aweless throne. What is a man? Sure he made us with such large discourse, looking before and after, gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fust in us unused.
1: O oh, my dear father, restoration hang thy medicine on my lips and let this kiss repair those violent harms that my two sisters have in thy reverence made
0: i am a king that find thee and i know tis not the balm the scepter and the ball the sword the mace the crown imperial the throne he sits on nor the pomp that beats on the high shore of the world this is the mighty history of the british empire a people living on a tiny island in the north atlantic ocean built an empire that circled the earth and brought freedom and education to languishing millions. This empire was blessed by Almighty God and one of his best educated teachers, William Shakespeare. Shakespeare has educated some of the greatest leaders of all time, such as Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill. We shall never surrender. Our troubled world needs a fresh crew of nation building leaders. Are you ready to step up to the challenge? Welcome to the exciting classroom of Shakespeare's Royal Education, with host, Dennis Lee.
1: Well, greetings everyone. Welcome back to Shakespeare's Royal Education. I hope you're not out there chuckling like, where have you been? Well, before I begin today's program, I thought I might take a few minutes and explain why I have been off the air for so long a time. I am sure that many of you out there have experienced an horrendous attack of COVID-19 virus. And it is clear now that the virus has affected many people in many different ways. And unfortunately for me, COVID attacked me seriously with my brain. And uh, it was very frustrating for me. But I know now with some uh, help from a friend of mine that's really more of a naturopath, he's a chiropractor, and he helped me understand why it affected my brain. And I thought I'd just uh, give you some details on it. So I know there's some of you out there are still suffering with brain fog, And I know a lot of people don't believe in such a thing, but I think those of us have experienced know that brain fog is real. (laughs) And COVID is a bioweapon, and it is built to attack people's brains. And so so let's not be uh, silly about that. Let's be serious about it because that is a bioweapon COVID-19 was. So about 10 years ago, I had a serious brain injury caused by a bicycle accident. And actually, it was my own fault. Uh, I was bicycling on campus, and I was got a little vein, and I thought, I don't need a helmet. So I took off and was chasing my little puppy at that time. And uh, she was ahead of me really fast, and I thought I'd speed up and catch her. And then I don't remember anything else that happened after that. <laughs> and so essentially what I had was uh, I... Passed out on the bike, and uh, the neurosurgeons, I had to go to the emergency room. The neurosurgeons thought I had an aneurysm, and uh, I did not, really. It was just a really serious brain injury. I did fully recover from that incident, but then uh, my chiropractor, who knew of the bicycle accident, was not surprised when I had developed serious brain fog from COVID. So he even said that it might take a year for the brain fog to go away, and by the way, he was right. So it's been almost a year since I've been on the uh, Shakespeare's Royal Education podcast. And so I hope to, uh, to stay on this now for quite some time. And uh, there's a lot of Shakespeare I would really like to get through with all of you. Now, the chiropractor agreed with me that I should not take the COVID vaccine. And even a medical doctor at that time told me, do not take the vaccine. And what he did is he recommended a regimen of healthy diet or fruits, vegetables, plus exercise and always go for sound sleep for recovery. And so I did uh, get out there and run. I got out there and walked when I quit and run. I uh, watched my diet and you know what? It worked and I am back. So all of you out there that have the brain fog, I suggest, and again, this is just my own opinion, I suggest you go to a nature path to get some help. And uh, they'll put you on the right path. A medical doctor is going to use more drugs and things like that with you, and I don't think that will be good for your brain. Well, with me in the studio today is my new producer, Mr. Dan Arnfeld, and I'm very happy to have him here. So say hello, Dan. Hello. For today's program, I want to give a special program about Shakespeare's tragedy, King Lear. Now, I know we need to finish the play, and I am committed to doing that, but I'll have to restart the effort of my reading assistants to help me spice up your enjoyment of the play. And I know they really enjoy helping with that, and I know that they really uh enjoy that you enjoy it. So I thought what you might also find interesting today is to know about the early controversy Shakespeare's incredible written drama stirred up at that time. And what I'm referring to is obviously King Lear. I think this effort will also draw you back into reading King Lear and also listening to the Shakespeare's Royal Education Podcast. And it might be a good idea for all of you that are happy that I'm back to go back and listen to the uh, earlier King Lear Podcast and then that will also help you to catch up. Now, here are some interesting things to note about the, let's uh, say, the drama that Shakespeare uh, stirred up off the stage. <laughs> and so it is commonly believed that Shakespeare wrote King Lear during the years 1605 and 1606. And I'm giving you that date for a reason, and I think you'll understand here in just a few minutes. The play was first performed before King James I on December 26, 1606, and he did that at Whitehall. Uh, I've been in that location, and they had their own stage and theater in Whitehall as well. Now, some scholars believe that Shakespeare's play stirred up controversy at that time even when it was first performed now of course king lear is an intense play i think uh, those of you that have started reading it and those of you that have maybe finished it you know it's intense but i don't always agree with scholars and would never consider myself to be one either but uh, it is a fact that shakespeare's king lear was banned from the british stage during the reign of king george iii because the king was insane and by the end of the play, we'll see that, that actually King Lear does lose his sanity. And it's a lot different than brain fog, by the way. And so, so with brain fog, you still have part of your brain. Uh, at least my wife feels I at least have a quarter of it left. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, that what they did by doing that, by banning King Lear, it wasn't because they hated King Lear, it's just they wanted to show great respect for the royal family. And all, all of you Americans uh, also ought to realize that King George III is known as the king that lost America. So that takes us back to the revolution. Now, to me, it's also interesting to note that some 75 years after the debut of Shakespeare's King Lear, a play titled The History of King Lear by author Nahum Tate came on the scene and appears to have replaced Shakespeare's version on the English stage in whole or in part until 1838. And so so that is what Wikipedia says. I thought it's interesting, uh, and uh, by the time we get to the end of the program, uh, I, I think you're going to see that there's probably a common reason between that time and this time why people would want to do that. But let's compare the two plays. And again, I think this will help you get get into back into King Lear. Now, I'm going to give you a quick overview of Tate's rewrite. So there's just a few lists here. It says, unlike Shakespeare's play, Tate's play has a happy ending. And uh, we know that uh, King Lear by Shakespeare does not have a happy ending. Also, at the end of the play, Lear regains his throne, which I think is interesting. Here's another fact in Tate's play. Cordelia marries Edgar. That's really strange. Then at the end of the play, Edgar joyfully declares that truth and virtue shall at last succeed. Now, the play was considered a tragedy comedy Now, <laughs> there's nothing comedic about King Lear, and it's certainly not Shakespeare's version. Nahum Tate's play has five acts, which is good. All of Shakespeare's plays have five acts. And, uh, it doesn't fail. There's always five acts, but there could be numerous numbers of scenes. There's no limit on scenes. And, uh, actually, when you get into King Richard the Third, which we will eventually, that is one of the longest plays, uh, he has. And it's the reason why it's so long. It's only five acts, but it's got like 16 to 18 scenes in some, in some of the acts. But anyway, in Nahum Tate's play, the number of scenes is different. The text is 800 lines shorter than Shakespeare's. Many of Shakespeare's original lines are retained, but are modified or slightly changed. And uh, to me, that's like, how can you do that to the bard? How can you modify his statements? And uh, I, I haven't actually have an answer for that, too, so you have to keep listening says says uh, also here in my notes, a significant portion of the text is entirely new and much is omitted. For example, the character of the fool is absent. So if you know anything about Shakespeare's King Lear, the fool has an absolutely incredibly important role in the whole play. And because the fool is the only person that can make fun of King Lear without getting his head chopped off. And the fool has the most, uh, let's say, Truthful and educational counsel to give the king, and he just asked the king. He said, "What you know? You, here you are. You're stuck out in the wilderness. You're stuck out in the rain. Uh, this is your fault. You did it to yourself. You know the way you treated your daughters, and so so the fool does that. And eventually, the fool does disappear in the play. But anyway, I can't imagine there being a play without the fool." So, obviously, Nahum Tate had a lot of hubris to even think about, you know, replacing uh, Shakespeare's play, but he did it. And, uh, there's still a few more things we can talk about that. I want to kind of reserve that to later. All right. Uh, let's look at Shakespeare's version of the play now. And, uh, I'm going to give you a little more details here. But, uh, again, I think this is going to get you interested in getting back into the play, and uh, there's no spoiler alert intended here. And so I think uh, most people know the storyline of the play. So here's Shakespeare's version first, and then we'll go back to Tate's. And again, that overview was just my my review of uh, what I thought of Tate's play. In Shakespeare's version, King Lear is growing old, and he's really old, it's time uh, he decides that he's tired of being a king. He doesn't want to be a king anymore. He wants to kind of go out and just hunt and fish with his knights. And so he decides that he's going to divide his kingdom up among his three daughters. Goneril, his oldest daughter, is wife of the Duke of Albany. Reagan, she's the wife of the Duke of Cornwall. And the youngest daughter, Cordelia, she's being uh, sought in marriage by the Duke of Burgundy and the King of France. Now, the thing is, it's I mean, I have four daughters. I love all four of them and they they all treat me very well and I work hard to treat them well. But what the king does is is he decides now he, he's again, he's tired of being king. He doesn't want to be king anymore. He doesn't want to deal with all the problems. And the king decides that he's going to give the best part of the kingdom to the daughter who loves him the most. And he has the three daughters come together. And he wants to hear them, tell them. He wants to be told how much they love him. Now, Goneril and Regan, they are absolute, well, I don't know how they even say it, but they, they are just hypocritical. They give him the most flattering speeches, and they just love him more than they love any other man on earth. They just think he's just a special thing. And what they're doing is they're flattering him to get the biggest part of the country. And so it's really kind of amazing. They just really want the biggest part. And, of course, they they are essentially are fighting against each other. Now, Cordelia, when it's her time, she just refuses to stoop to such false flattery for gain. I mean, she's the only one with actually any morals. She said, I'm not going to, you know, make up all this stuff about you and flatter you. I'm not going to do that. And so she also says, when I get married, I'm going to love my husband first. And I'll still love you, but I'm going to love him first. That's just normal. So essentially what happens, the king just gets absolutely enraged. He disinherits and disowns his once favorite child. And that's the point. She already was his favorite. She, he already knew how much she loved him. Uh, but anyway, she gets banished. Now, when she gets banished, the Duke of Burgundy decides, well, man, if you don't have a dowry, I'm not going to marry you. And so he dumps her. And then the king of France, he accepts her as his bride because he says her character is worth more than any dowry. And so you can see that Shakespeare is really setting things up. Now, that's just one part of the play. Now, in the, the, the second part of the play, there's a subplot with Earl of Gloucester. And he's tricked by his wicked, illegitimate son, Edmund, into believing that his virtuous, legitimate elder son, Edgar, is plotting his death. Now, Edgar is forced to flee for his life and disguises himself as a madman. And so so you can begin to see that this is a pretty intense play. Edgar isn't plotting his death. It's Edmund that's plotting his death. Now, Edmund is, again, he's illegitimate. What he wants, he wants to get Edgar out of the way so that he can get the money, so that he can get the estate. Edgar's not plotting his death. Edgar's kind of uh, just oblivious to it all. Now, Edgar is kind of a, well, kind of a sports guy. He loves soccer. He loves uh, playing games. He runs around with his friends. So he might not be the best example either. Now, in the also in this play, Kent, who is one of the uh, best servants to King Lear, he's just absolutely incensed that, lear would banish his daughter he he just can't understand it goner on regan now they have the kingdom they treat their father with contempt they demand that he reduce the number of knights attending on him and then lear curses his daughters and rushes out and, and this is in the uh, next couple of scenes of the play he runs out into the storm so the point is there's something really wrong with lear he's just angry he's quick to be angry he, he makes stupid decisions. He doesn't get support. He's really pretty arrogant. Now, the Earl of Gloucester, when he sees all this happen, he decides he's going to try and assist the king. And he's actually forbidden to do so by Reagan in Cornwall. And so, so this is his daughter saying, no, you can't take care of him. He's out in the storm. And they're saying, look, Gloucester, you can't go out there. Leave him alone. And then it goes on there, if you it, you know follow the storyline, they get Gloucester, he's caught, and they interrogate him. And essentially what happens is Cornwall gouges out Gloucester's eyes. Uh, eventually Cornwall is killed because of uh, he has a servant that is horrified what they're doing to his eyes. Now Lear is out there in the storm, and he's with Kent, and then the fool is essentially the funniest guy in the whole play, uh, is out there with him. But when you get King Lear out there, he is his sanity is totally gone. Now these three are joined by Edgar, who's pretending to be mad, and he's just acting mad. And then Edgar meets his blinded father, and he's grieved and shocked. And he maintains his disguise, but stays with his father and manages to save him from suicide. So, So that's one of the funniest scenes in the play, is when Gloucester is talking to, he doesn't even know it's his son because uh, he can't see him. And he decides he's going to you know, commit suicide. And he says, take me to this cliff so I can jump off the cliff. And essentially what his son does, he takes him to a little hill. And he says, okay, dad. <laughs> he doesn't say dad, but he says, go ahead, jump. And he just falls flat on his face, you know, in the sand. And so he actually knocks himself out. And then he wakes up. Uh, the son pretends that they're down and that he survived the fall. <laughs> so it's really pretty humorous scene. Now, some of the other things in the play that are really, uh, really very interesting. It says uh, in my notes here Goneril and Regan both fall in love with Edmund, and he's the, the uh, illegitimate son, and they become jealous of each other. So Edgar fights and kills a servant. Sent by Goneril to kill his father, he finds in the dead man's in the dead man's letters. There's a message from Goneril to Edmund proposing that Edmund murder Albany and marry her. So, in other words, she wants to get rid of her her husband, and she wants to marry uh, Edmund. But the problem is, Regan also loves him, and uh, she wants to marry him. So eventually, Cordelia and Lear meet. They're reconciled. His frenzy is past. The doctors are taken care of. This is when, I mean, you have to understand this is towards the very end of the play, and Lear is absolutely bananas. Edgar is still disguised. He gives Goneril's incriminating letter to Albany. An army is sent by Cordelia's forces in France. They fight the British forces and is defeated. Lear and Cordelia are captured and are sent to prison. Albany intends to show them mercy, but Edmund secretly sends a message to the prison to have them hanged. Edgar accuses Edmund of treachery, challenges him to a duel. The two brothers fight, and Edmund is fatally wounded. Goneril rushes in in despair. Regan dies, and the reason she dies is because her sister has poisoned her. And uh, then Goneril stabs herself uh, to death. She commits suicide because she's caught having poisoned her sister. Edgar then reveals his identity to Edmund, tells us how their father died from frailty, And when Edgar reveals himself, Edmund expresses remorse, confesses his order to have King Lear and Cordelia hanged in prison, but the reprieve is too late. Lear enters in the last act. He enters with Cordelia's body in his arms. He's howling. He's screaming because she's dead. And he keeps saying, I might have saved her. Now she's gone forever. And of course, he his heart breaks and then he dies. And then Albany and Kent and Edgar will rule the kingdom. But... We also find out that Kent hints at his own approaching death. So that's the storyline of Shakespeare's play. And so now I want to compare it with Tate's version, just to have you see why on earth would Tate do what he did, and then why would people like it so much? I mean, he essentially replaced uh, Shakespeare's version. Now, here's what Tate does in his play. In Tate's version, he admits the king of France. He adds a romance between Cordelia and Edgar, who never address each other in Shakespeare's original. Cordelia explains in an aside that her motive for remaining silent when Lear demanded public expressions of his love is that he leave her without a dowry so she can escape the loath embraces of Burgundy. <laughs> so, so that's really hilarious. I mean, it's a complete change of what's going on in the play. It says, nevertheless, when Burgundy departs, his obvious self-interest temporarily causes her to lose faith in Edgar's love and fidelity. And left alone with him, she tells him not to speak to her again of love. (laughs) So, so look at that twist. She doesn't love Burgundy. And then, you know, she's in love with Edgar. And then all of a sudden she just, she even turns on Edgar. Now, also, in Tate's version, there's no fool whatsoever. The only thing that Lear has then is the fidelity of Kent. So there's no fool. So Kent, Kent kind of steps in and acts like the fool. Cordelia never leaves for France, but stays in England, tries to find her father in the storm to help him. You know, so that's like the middle of the play. Tate gives her a servant or confidant named Arante. A-R-A-N-T-E. Tate adds further wickedness to the character of Edmund who plans to rape Cordelia. <laughs> you know, isn't that bizarre? I mean, that's the most bizarre thing you want to hear. And then he sends two ruffians to abduct her. They are driven off by the disguised Edgar, who then reveals his identity to Cordelia and is rewarded by being accepted back into her love again. So now she's absolutely madly in love with with Edgar. Isn't this preposterous? I mean, isn't it isn't it insane? The battle to restore Lear to the throne is not from any foreign army sent by Cordelia but from the British people who are resentful of the tyranny of Goneril and Regan indignant at their treatment of Lear and outraged by the blinding of Gloucester and of course he changes the spelling of Gloucester's name uh, I guess uh, because there is a you know the Duke of Gloucester is a official royal family honor And it says, in Shakespeare's version, Lear sides, loses, and he and Cordelia are taken prisoner. Edmund ignores Albany's wish to show mercy and sends a secret message to have them hanged. Edgar reveals his identity to Edmund before the brothers fight. Edmund dies with no sign of remorse and makes no attempt to save Lear and Cordelia. Instead of Goneril poisoning Regan and her later stabbing herself, the two sisters secretly poison each other. (laughs) I'm sorry for laughing, but this is hilarious. I mean, uh would you be interested in reading something like this and put it on the same level as Shakespeare? So um Gloucester survives the shock of learning the identity of Edgar, whom he has treated unjustly. Lear kills two men who approach Cordelia to hang her, and Edgar and Albany arrive with a reprieve. Albany resigns the crown to Lear, and Lear announces that Cordelia shall be queen. Lear gives Cordelia to Edgar... I wronged him too, but here the fair amends. There, Kent and Gloucester will retire to some cool cell. The overjoyed Edgar declares that truth and virtue shall at last succeed. And that's the end of the play. So, what does that sound like to you? Um, let me just finish this one idea here. It says Tate's version is about 800 lines shorter than Shakespeare. Some of Shakespeare's original lines are left intact. Some are modified slightly or given to different speakers. In other words of Stanley Wells, Tate rather asked for trouble by retaining as much of Shakespeare as he did, thereby inviting odious comparisons with verse that he wrote himself. But Wells also points out that at the time that Tate was making his alterations, Shakespeare was not regarded as a master whose work could not be touched, But as a dramatist whose works, however admirable, required adaptation to fit them for the new theatrical and social circumstances of the time, as well as to the changes in taste. And so, so one of the things that I just, you know, want to suggest to all of you that are listening into this, to me, what, what's going on, and again, this happened in 1681 where this play came out to replace Shakespeare's. Doesn't it sound an awful lot like our time? <laughs> I mean, it sounds so much like it. And what Wikipedia is trying to do, it's, I, I've got a lot of this out of, out of Wikipedia, by the way. But it's in some ways, I think Wikipedia is trying to kind of maybe uh, not be so mean to Tate. And here's what they say about why, why Tate did this. It says many of the changes that are made by Tate are a result of the restoration ideas of that time. So here, Shakespeare actually, when he wrote his play, he based it on the history of King Lear. And I know I've talked to you about this, that, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that say that King Lear is just a myth. But there have been other people, the Shakespeare scholars, that they say actually the history is true of Lear. So essentially, what they wanted to do is they wanted to to make the play more fitting to what people were thinking at that time. And that's why they say that many of the changes that are made by Tate are a result of the restoration ideas of that time. Now, Tate's play was popular in the 1680s, and that was right after the restoring of the monarchy after the interregnum. And I think uh, if you don't know what the interregnum was, it all gets back to uh, Charles I, if, you're, if you remember, Charles I was executed uh, for the way he ruled, and uh, then for the next, I don't know how many years, they call it the Interregnum. The British people were trying to look for how how could they build a government without a king, and they didn't want a king anymore. They they wanted to just have a government but without a king, and this this is known as the Interregnum. Now the time known as the Restoration is when they put Charles's son, Charles I, on the throne. And that's called the Big Restoration. And to make this play really popular, they wanted uh, the play to be a reflection of the times, like restoration. And so that's why in the play, that's why he wants to restore King Lear to the throne. This is like an example of the of the interregnum. So in, in some ways what we're seeing here is the restoration stage as a whole. And if you look at, I mean, come on, if we're just honest about our time, all the movies reflect what's happening in society anyway. You know, the government in the United States has just really been destroyed. But people want to believe, well, that transgenderism is great. People want to believe that, you know, homosexuality is great. People want to believe that lying is absolutely perfect. You know, you should be able to lie anytime you want. And yet we know that we have a government that lies to us. And we saw just recently with you know, Biden's State of the Union address that the people know he's lying. Even the Democrats know he's lying. So it's it's just amazing, I think, you know, what's going on here. Uh, I'm going to read now from Wikipedia. It says, Tate chose to draw on politics and restore Lear to his throne just as a philosophical milieu, and it was just the same as Charles II was restored as the English king's monarch, making the play more topical and relatable with audiences at the time. Not only can Tate's restoring Lear to the throne be justified by restoration sensibilities, but by the addition of the love story between Cordelia and Edgar, and the omission of the fool as all the result of restoration ideas. So it's it's really kind of interesting. It's the politics really affected how the play was done. So I, I think that that is really, really interesting. Now, there's just a few more things I wanted to bring out here. I really want to get back into this play and I really want to do a good job with it. And I thought I'd I'd also read you something from Harold Bloom, and if you don't know, a lot of the people in England would know a lot about Harold Bloom. He's probably one of the most famous analysts and, and writers on on Shakespeare. He just has an incredible thing to say about King Lear, and the thing is, why would this be so popular? I, I guess I just failed to tell you that that actually in New York City, not too long ago, they redid King Lear on stage, but they used Tate's version. And, you know, I'm not surprised. You know, I'm not surprised they would do that. And I guess it was held by just great acclaim in New York. And so it's the radical left. So there was a radical left all the way back at the time of Shakespeare as well. This is a, he he wrote a really good book uh, on all of Shakespeare's plays. I mean, this guy was just a really, really great writer. And um, he says in his section on King Lear, he says, King Lear, together with Hamlet, ultimately baffles commentary. Of all Shakespeare's dramas, these show an apparent infinitude that perhaps transcend the limits of literature. In other words, this play is written so perfectly and it has a theme that it's like it gives it infinitude and it says uh it's transcend all the limits of literature king lear and hamlet like the Yahweh's text and he's talking about the old testament the earliest in the pentateuch and the gospel of mark announced the beginning and the end of human nature and destiny so how many people at the time then when they liked uh you know tate's version of the play how many were they just sick of looking at human nature displayed on the stage. So, in other words, I think what Harold Bloom is saying, if you look at these two plays, Shakespeare has done an excellent job of exposing the dark side in all of us. That's what people see. And they see that, I mean, if you look at Goneril, if you look at you know her sister, Regan, and you look at Cordelia, you realize they were so jealous of their younger sister because she was a favorite, they wanted to get rid of her. They were looking for ways to get rid of her. And so they figured they flattered their dad, <laughs> she's gone. And they, they really did try to get rid of their sister. And so to me, that happens in families today where people want to get rid of each other. And, uh, you know, it's sad. But here, Harold Bloom, again, He's a, he's a real intellect. And yet he's talking about the Bible. He's talking about the Pentateuch and he's talking about the Gospel of Mark and how they're talking about the beginning and the end of human nature and destiny. And so we need to sometimes look at a piece of literature where someone like Shakespeare, who who really understood human nature, can really be helpful to us. Now he goes on to say, that sounds rather inflated and yet merely as accurate, the Iliad, the Koran, Dante's Comedy, Milton's Paradise Lost are the only rival works in what could be called a Western tradition. Now, he's not putting them on the same uh, level as Shakespeare, but he's saying that they could be part of that tradition. He said, this is to say that Hamlet and King Lear now constitute either a kind of secular scripture or a mythology. Now, I would say he has a lot of respect for, for Shakespeare. If he's saying, look, this is, this is kind of like secular scripture. He says, the experience of reading King Lear in particular is altogether uncanny. We are at once estranged and uncomfortably at home. For me, at least, no other solitary experience is like it. So, in other words, it's like Shakespeare is holding up a mirror and you're looking at yourself. And he said, it's an experience. And I really believe and, uh, of course, we believe this here at at Armstrong College is, you know, I I obviously teach Shakespeare. And uh sometimes you can't necessarily get everything out of it. But if you see a really well-done movie, it might help you. But we make sure they read the play first before they see a movie. And essentially, this is what Harold Bloom is saying is to really get the most out of King Lear, you've got to read it for yourself. He said that if you really put yourself into it, it's going to give you a solitary experience like nothing else. He says, I emphasize reading more than ever because I've attended many stages of King Lear and invariably have regretted being there. So it is interesting that you could go and think you're going to see a great King Lear, and it's not very good. I know that uh, some of our students, we do like to go to Shakespeare in the Park and then there are a lot of times <laughs> we leave Shakespeare in the park disappointed because, wow, they just wrecked the play. And that's the big thing right now. And, and what are people doing with Shakespeare's plays today is they're trying to make them look modern, and that destroys them. It says, uh, our directors and actors are defeated by this play, and I begin sadly to agree with Charles Lamb that we ought to keep rereading King Lear and avoided stage travesties. Now Charles Lamb he he wrote an awful lot about uh Shakespeare in the time when he was uh, alive. I mean he was Charles Lamb goes back to the same time frame as as Shakespeare. Charles Lamb was was uh just really disgusted with uh the history of King Lear by Tate. He he just thought it was a travesty. In fact, um what he said was Charles Lamb let's see he said I guess it was Samuel Johnson, who's a famous, also a famous English, he regarded Cordelia's death in Shakespeare's play as unbearable. So he was actually supportive of what Tate did. But when you when you look at Charles Lamb uh, and, and what he said about it, he just said it was cheap sentimentality, is <laughs> Tate's play, is cheap sentimentality. And the thing is, uh, I think what Bloom is saying is, look, when you go to a really good Shakespeare play, you should expect to see yourself, and uh, maybe you need to make some changes in your life, you know, after it's over, after the play's over. Uh, Lear goes on to say, It says, um, Assaulted by films, television, and computers, our inner and outer ears have difficulty apprehending Shakespeare's hum of thoughts evaded uh, in the mind. Since the tragedy of King Lear well may be the height of literary experience. We cannot afford to lose our capability for confronting it. Lear's torments are central to us, almost to all of us, since the sorrows of generational strife are necessarily universal. And so he's saying, look, uh, there's something we can learn from this play. It's central to us. And, uh, you know, I know I have four wonderful daughters, four wonderful uh, son-in-laws. I ha- now have 11 grandchildren. And uh, it's a great life. One of the things that Bloom really believes is that Shakespeare developed his character, King Lear, from Job, from the biblical figure, Job. And uh, here's what he says. Job's sufferings have been suggested as the paradigm for Lear's ordeal. I once gave credence to this critical commonplace, but now I find it unpersuasive. Patient Job is actually not very patient. Despite his theological reputation, And Lear is the pattern of all impatience. (laughs) He says, uh, though he vows otherwise and movingly urges patience on the blinded Gloucester. The pragmatic disproportion between Job's afflictions and Lear is rather considerable, at least until Cordelia is murdered. I suspect that a different biblical model was in Shakespeare's mind. Maybe King Solomon. I do not mean Solomon in all his glory. In King's Chronicles and obliquely in the Song of Songs. But the aged monarch, at the end of his reign, wise yet exacerbated the supposed preacher of Ecclesiastes and of the wisdom of Solomon in the Apocrypha. As well, well, we don't want to necessarily talk about the Apocrypha here. It says um, presumably Shakespeare was read aloud to from the bishop's Bible in his youth and later read the Geneva Bible for himself in his maturity. Since he wrote King Lear as a servant of King James I, who had the reputation of being the wisest fool in Christendom, perhaps Shakespeare's conception of Lear was influenced by James's particular admiration for Solomon, wisest of kings. And so, so I don't necessarily agree with everything he's saying there, but Bloom has definitely read the Bible. And, uh, you know, he could make the connection between Shakespeare and the Bible. I think that's that's all I want to read from from there. But anyway, I think it is really, really quite interesting that uh, here we are back on uh, Shakespeare's Royal Education. Here we are. We're still with King Lear, and uh, we're going to finish it. There's a lot in there for us, and I think we really need to stay with it. Let me just give you a little bit more background now on Tate, and this, again, is from from Wikipedia, and I do think it's kind of interesting. It says, the earliest known performance of Shakespeare's King Lear is one which took place at the court of James I on the 26th of December, 1606. Some scholars believe it was not well received, as there are few surviving references to it. The theaters were closed during the Puritan Revolution, and while records from the period are incomplete, Shakespeare's Lear is only known to have been performed twice more after the Restoration, before being replaced by Tate's version. And so, if you look at it, it was not not really well received. Tate's radical adaptation, The History of King Lear, appeared in 1681, In the dedicatory epistle, he explains how, in Shakespeare's version, he realized that he had found a heap of jewels, unstrung and unpolished, yet so dazzling in their disorder that he soon perceived he had seized a treasure, and how he found it necessary to rectify what was wanting in the regularity and probability of the tale. A love between Edgar and Cordelia, which would make Cordelia's indifference to her father's anger more convincing in the first scene and would justify Edgar's disguise, making that a generous delight that was before a poor shift to save his life. And so, so again, this is all talking about, you know, what was going on at that time politically. The history of King Lear was first uh, performed in 1681. I told you that. It says, uh, it's talking about one of the actors that played it. There was a lot of famous, by the way, Shakespearean actors would uh, take part in the history of King Lear by Tate, but they would not take part in Shakespeare's King Lear. And so, so you can see that there was this, this turn against it all. Anyway, the point is, is, I think, what we have to realize for ourselves, you know, we can ask ourselves a few questions like, why would authors like Nahum Tate want to change a tragic drama into a tragic comedy? I mean, uh, again... I think that that's the way our world is today, and it seems like, you know, they say that history always repeats itself, and of course, there were some really tough times that did come on Britain. To me, I, I really feel like when we have our Shakespeare advocates, even in this country, and they they want to produce Tate's version of King Lear, I really think that the reason for that is people don't want to face the reality of their own lives, and especially not the sad state of today's world. That's what I, what I think is going on. William Shakespeare was a great teacher on the subject of human nature. We all have it. We all have to deal with it. And there's a lot of times we don't want to look in the mirror and do it. But uh, I think reading King Lear actually forces us to take a look at our own human nature. And I think reading Shakespeare can really help us delve into even some of our own problems and that that we can uh, help ourselves by really challenging ourselves to read more of Shakespeare and read more of some of the better literature. And, of course, I think we all need to be uh, spending some more time with our Bibles. Well, that's all the time I have for today. And I just wanted to to, uh, let you know that on our next program, I'll review Act One, what we've already covered, and then I'll start discussing Act Two of William Shakespeare's King Lear. Now, I'm also uh, hoping to have all my play assistants back reading and we'll be taping their voices as well. Now, you can buy a good used copy of Shakespeare's play, King Lear, at abebooks.com. You can uh, also be able to find copies in your local bookstore. And of course, now that COVID's fanfare is over you can get into your library and of course you can also you can go to Abe books but then there's also amazon as well so please write me any comments we have to uh, comments at kpcg.fm you can also comment at my twitter page shakespeare's royal education so join me next time as we advance our royal education
0: you've been listening to shakespeare's royal education on trumpet radio 101.3 KPCG streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com